Being... Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. So I'm excited to uh, let you know we're going to uh, begin a, a new study in this wonderful, incredible book. I look forward to introducing it to you this morning. And I trust God is going to uh, bless us through it. In fact, I was reading in my own devotional time this morning, Psalm 25. And in the 25th Psalm, the psalmist prays, make known to me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. And I've just been my prayer this morning that God during our time in his word this morning would indeed teach us his ways and make known to us his paths for indeed he is the God who has saved us. And it's to that God's word we now have the great privilege to consider this morning from the book of Colossians, here now, the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we can consider, that we can uh, meditate upon, and that we can seek uh, by your Spirit to apply to our lives that we might become more like Christ. And yet, even as we now turn our heart's attention to your word, we are uh, thankful for um, all the youth who are, have been away studying your word on the fall retreat, we pray for them that they travel home even now, and that they, you will give them safety and watch over them. But more importantly, Father, we pray that the word that has been taught to them this week, even as the word that is taught to us, may produce a great fruit, even as we see here in this, in this passage. May it indeed, as it did in the Colossians long ago, cause us to love one another in the Spirit. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in Chicago in 1893 when a stunning figure rose to address a very unusual crowd. His name was Swami Vivekananda. He was a 30-year-old man from a prominent family in Calcutta, India, and he stood before the parliament of the world's religion, which was associated with the world's fair in that day. And so there he stood before 7,000 delegates as he introduced Hinduism to America. In, in doing so, he explained he believed that all religions essentially share the same truth. In fact, many were influenced by Vivekananda's presentation one report uh, spoke of the great influence he had by saying, by far the most 
important representative of Hinduism was Swami Vivekananda, who in fact was beyond question the most popular and influential man in the parliament. He was received with greater enthusiasm than any other speaker, Christian or pagan. The people thronged about him wherever he went and hung with eagerness on his every word. The most rigid of Orthodox Christians say of him, he indeed is a prince among men. The New York Herald, not to be outdone, wrote of this event saying, Vivekananda is undoubtedly the greatest figure in the Parliament of Religions. After hearing him, we feel how foolish it is to send missionaries to his learned nation. He, uh, his speech was, was, was rather impactful, as you could tell. He had one kind of core message that he continually rephrased over and over again in that message that he gave. I quote him, truth is one. The wise call it by many names. I think that's a, a pretty common view today, isn't it? This was, of course, 1893. Perhaps he was ahead of his time. It seems to me, if you ask the common man on the street, most people would agree that, that all religions basically teach the same truths. We, we call our gods by different names, but at the core, don't they teach the same thing? I think that's a fair question. I think that's a question we have to deal with. I think this is a question asked by millions of people. And perhaps it might even be asked by you. Maybe you watch it on live stream. Maybe you say, hey, isn't Christianity pretty much the same as everything else? That's a view that many hold, but it probably was not a view held by a man named Paul who wrote this book of Colossians that we studied this morning. He writes this book actually from prison. Look over in chapter 4. You see Paul explains in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now note this, on account of which I am in prison. And so Paul is in prison. We believe in Rome. And so why is he in prison? Well, he tells us, I'm in prison on account of my faith, on account of my religious beliefs, on account of my adherence to, to what, what we call Christianity. Now, I would ask you, if all religions are the same, well, there was certainly no need to try to convince others of yours, as Paul was doing, spending his entire life to do so. Certainly be no reason to go to prison for your faith if they all basically taught the same. And yet, and th there Paul is, imprisoned, because he believed that his religion was actually different from the other religions. Then the core of that religion it contained a truth, the truth, which the Bible calls the gospel. And Paul was not the only one who believed this, right? Uh, there was a group of Colossians, individuals living in this city called Colossae that believed too. If you look back in chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, we read here, do we not? Of this you have heard uh, before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so these, these Colossians believe this gospel, and in doing so they have formed a church. And it's to this new church that Paul writes this letter. It's interesting I think, uh, that I discovered in my study of Colossians, Paul never met them. Paul's never been, or as far as we know, never would go to the city of Colossae. And yet he writes them a letter. You ever get a letter from someone you don't know? It's usually not too exciting. It's usually two bucks off a pizza, right? Or these days, uh, your mailbox is filled, as, as mine is, by some politician you don't know, explaining why his opponent or her opponent is not quite Stalin, but pretty close. 
And usually, uh, I don't know what you do with those, they go in the rubbish bin rather quickly. Right? And, and yet, here, uh, this little group of unremarkable believers receives a letter, don't they? I say unremarkable, I just think they're common people. We don't know much about them other than from this book. We know they met most likely in a house to worship, not, not a beautiful building like we have here. We know from chapter 3 they sang when they gathered to worship, just like we've done this morning. We know they prayed together. We know that someone would teach them from Scripture, just like is happening right now, most likely from the Old Testament, for that's the Scripture they had. We know that they would encourage one another in order to continue to follow after their God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and one day this little church gathering receives a letter from the hands of two men, the first name Tychicus, the second Onesimus. You see them, again, look over in chapter 7. I don't know if you find all this interesting, but I find it fascinating. And I'm in charge today, so. Uh, here we are in chapter 4, verse 7. We kind of skip over the, the, you know, the, the farewell sections of these letters. I, I find they're so full of information. There, he says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your heart. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And so these two men show up, Tychicus, perhaps they don't know him, Onesimus, they do know him. He's actually from this area. And of course, we know from the book of Philemon that Onesimus is a runaway slave, which now Paul's sending back home to his master. You can read about that in that wonderful little book that Paul writes, as I mentioned, Philemon. And so here they come, and, and they have a letter from a man they never met, but it's not junk mail, is it? It's from Paul, an apostle. And I just, I, I, I can't even imagine, I tried to, I, perhaps you can uh, try as well, that we've gathered for worship in a home, and these two men walk in, and he, he says, I have, I, I bear tidings, I bring a letter from Paul, the apostle, imprisoned in Rome, and the scroll is broken, and the letter is unrolled, and they begin by reading Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ and Colossae. And then he goes on to unfold glories that heretofore have been unconsidered by these Christians, and which we shall consider in our study of the book of Colossians. Welcome to the book of Colossians. You ought to be excited. It is an incredible and wonderful book in which God wants to do great work through it in our lives. Four short chapters, as you probably know. It will take you 15 minutes to read. You might want to set aside. I think that'll probably be a good use of 15 minutes this week. I'm going to read the book of Colossians. Just sit down and read it. In fact, you might even want to read the book of Colossians every week while we study it. How familiar will you become with this book? I bet that will aid you in our study of it as we work through it verse by verse. You notice the location of the church there in verse 2. Uh, we're told that it is in Colossae. Colossae is a small town in the Lycus Valley, or was a small town in Lycus Valley, in western Turkey, or what they would call Asia Minor in this day. Paul, as I mentioned, never been, was there, but he did preach in a nearby town called Ephesus. You can read about Paul's preaching ministry in Acts 19. And if you do so, we find out that Paul, for two years in Ephesus, preached daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And Luke will tell us in the book of Acts, quote, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, as Paul taught there for two years. One of those who heard and believed Paul, we, we think, was a man named Epaphras. 
he'll be introduced to us in verse 7 of chapter 1. Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, went back to Colossae, and what did he do with that gospel? But he shared it with his family and friends. And because he did so, a church was planted in a very insignificant town, a little, little, little town on a, on a road, not even a, 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 a major road. Colossae was, I think, the, the Lovettsville of its day. Nothing in particular of importance to it, and yet a place where the gospel was needed. If you were to visit Colossae today, I don't know if you ever want to take like a tour of Paul's journeys. If you go to Colossae, you'll be disappointed because there's nothing there. It was destroyed in 60 AD by an earthquake and was never rebuilt. And yet for a generation, that little town of Colossae, there was an even smaller church of amazing significance. And about five years after it was planted, Paul now in prison in Rome gets a visitor Guess from whom? Epaphras. And Epaphras, you can imagine, came to Paul and said, Paul, listen, I used to sit in the pew and listen to you teach daily in the hall of Tyrannus and Ephesus, and I believed, and I went back to my home, and I started a church there, I planted there, and now Epaphras has traveled all the way from Colossae to Rome to find Paul. And he does so because trouble has now invaded this church. You could probably guess. It's usually always one of three kinds, isn't it? It's either immorality, persecution, or false teaching. In Colossians, uh, it is sadly false teaching, as we'll see in chapter 2. And so Epaphras comes to Paul and seeks Paul's counsel. How should I continue to pastor the church in midst of this heresy? Paul will then write a letter, of course the book of Colossians, to provide clarity on, on these doctrinal issues... But the letter, it is a letter that Epaphras could not deliver himself. For we find out in the book of Philemon that Epaphras was arrested and imprisoned. Which is why Paul doesn't send the pastor back, but he sends these two other individuals, as we already mentioned, Tychicus and Onesimus. In this letter, what we're going to discover is one of the most exalted descriptions of Jesus Christ anywhere in the Bible. It is extraordinary. It is breathtaking. One commentator says, there is no book in the New Testament which presents such a comprehensive picture of the fullness of Christ. Another says, Colossians is worldview shaping, mind expanding, game changing. The stronger our grasp of its message, the greater our open mouth astonishment will become. That's my prayer for us as we study this book. Perhaps you've heard when an astronaut first goes into space, they experience what has been called the overview effect. That is, they see the whole planet at once. The entire earth, they look at it and see the whole thing, and it changes their lives. The national boundaries, perhaps, which once held such powerful sway in their, in their lives, as they step back and look at the earth, loses their significance. The petty concerns kind of dissolve based upon this galactic perspective. It is, from what I understand, truly overwhelming. I think Colossians offers us something like that, though even greater an overview effect of the majesty of King Jesus as Lord of all as we discover his preeminence and the life-changing implications of it. And so we begin today just by introducing this book, considering the gospel's work as we see, first of all, the gospel creates community. Point number one, the gospel's community. Note verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. This letter is written by Paul 
And Paul can write a letter full of teaching and even commands because he is, as he declares there, an apostle. An apostle. That is, Paul has authority over them by virtue of his office as an apostle. Now, the word apostle, which is a common word, it's just a general word in that day. It simply, it, we, people would have used that word, not in religious context. An apostle simply meant one who is sent with a message. One who is sent with a message. And so, and the Bible uses the term apostle in that way. So, for instance, Barnabas is called an apostle. That is, I think, it's a general usage of this word. He's one who's been sent. But what the Bible often does, he takes these general words and assigns to them specific or a technical meaning. And so an apostle can also mean uh, a, an office holder in the church. For instance, it does this with the word pastor. Pastor simply means a shepherd, someone who cares for sheep. That's the general meaning. And yet the Bible uh, assigns a very unique uh, uh, usage of that word to, for someone who holds a teaching office in the church. Deacon, the same thing. Deacon was a common word, meant servant, and yet it became a technical word that it's described as someone who serves the church. And so the apostle, apostle is the same way. Um, it is someone, uh, can mean someone who's sent with a message, but often means an office holder in the church. A very unique office, as you probably know. It is an unrepeated office. You say, are there any more apostles? Well, there are people sent with messages, most certainly. But the, uh, an apostle is one who has authority. No, that, that office has ended. It was given to the twelve originally, and then to Paul, I would suggest perhaps to replace Judas as a false apostle, and he, he, Paul here declares, how did I get to be an apostle? He says, by the will of God. You see that? By the will of God, I became an apostle. He didn't say, as a little boy, you know, I hope I grow up and be an apostle. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to work really hard and try to be an apostle. Okay? He says, by the will of God, as God appeared to the prophets and called them into their unique ministry, so he appeared to Paul, as you know, on the Damascus Road in Christ, and sent him out to proclaim the gospel. So Paul will write in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 that the church's foundation is built upon the prophets and the apostles. In other words, the apostle has the very authority of Christ. He's like a, a power of attorney. You give someone a power of attorney, they can now legally act in your name. Well, the apostles are acting in the name of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul is able to give us scripture. Right? These, the, Colossians is not simply the opinions of a missionary or a church planner. They're the word of God. And so we rightly can say, hear now the word of God and read the book of Colossians. Of course, Paul's not alone. As you see there in verse 1, he mentions Timothy's with him. Timothy will go on to pastor Ephesus, which will be very close by to Colossians, as we've already said. And so Paul still writes this letter. You notice he write, to whom he writes it, not, not to the Colossians, but verse 2 tells us, to the saints to the saints in Christ and Colossae. Saints and Colossae. So you, you might wonder, are they, were they special Christians? Right? It's just kind of an elite group of Christians, like the Green Beret of Christians? No, there's normal Christians. Normal Christians. There's quite a bit of confusion as to what a saint is in our day, sadly. Much of this is caused uh, by the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic believe that, that a saint is so, as a, someone who's dead. You can only become a saint once you die. And that saint has, a, has done enough good works that they bypass the Roman Catholic place of purgatory. Right? All believers, in, according to Roman Catholic theology, they go to purgatory after you die and you're there for 10,000, 10 million years while you're tortured to burn your sin off. 
But if you're a saint, you're so good, you jump past, like, past purgatory right into heaven. But, but you're even more good than that. Because you've accomplished so much goodness in your life, you have extra goodness to give to other people. These are called, in Roman Catholic theology, supererogatory works. So you're, you're so righteous that you've accumulated so much goodness that not only do you get past purgatory, you got extra goodness. And so Roman Catholics will name their children after saints or venerate Saints Day in order for that saint to secure favor with God on their behalf by crediting them with their good works, their supererogatory works. There's just one problem with that theology. It's nowhere taught in the Bible. In fact, it's contrary to the Bible, right? And, and, and in fact, we, we may not hold to that theology as Baptists, but we have a we, similar confusion, perhaps, with saints. We, we, we think of a saint as like an elite Christian, like St. Paul or St. Luke or, you know, your Aunt Betsy's a real saint, isn't she? And, and we'll excuse our behavior and say, well, you know, I'm not a saint after all. Well, if you're a Christian, you are. According to the Bible, all Christians are saints. Saint is the normal word for Christian. In fact, you'll find the word Christian very infrequently in the Bible. You'll find saint all the time. In fact, uh, for instance, Ananias was told to go and heal uh, Paul, who was recently converted. Uh, he protested to God, saying, Lord, I've heard how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. We read elsewhere that Peter came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Paul would write of the worldly uh, Corinthians to the church of God, which is at Corinth, saints by calling. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you are a saint. Saint is the Christian's title. I love the story of Harry Ironside, the former pastor of Moody Church who was traveling by train across the country and he met some nuns who were aware of his Bible teaching and they were fond of, of some of the things he had to say. And uh, Moody uh, liked, was kind of a, a practical joker a bit, and, and he said to these nuns, have you ever seen a saint? And of course they said, no, they haven't seen a saint, so saints are dead. He says, would you like to see a saint? And they're very confused by this. And they said, sure, we'd like to see a saint. And he says, well, here I am. I'm Saint Harry, right? And uh, in confronting uh, their, their erroneous theology, then he opened to Colossians 1 and showed them and 1 Corinthians 1 and so forth. And so, listen, uh, we're, we're, we're saints. And there's Saint Scott over there and Saint Esther. And, uh, you know, uh, we, are, we, are, we are, in fact, I'm thinking of signing my emails that way from now on. Uh, you, know, you know, Saint Stephen, especially when people are fussing at me. I'm going to see, you know, Saint Stephen down there. Hey, we're, this is what the Bible calls us. Well, what does it mean? Well, saint is simply the noun form of the adjective holy. Okay? That's all the grammar will do for today. Okay? It just means that you're a holy one, that you are set apart, separated, but not because of what you have done, but because of who you, whose you are. Look again in verse 2. Read very carefully. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Why are they saints? Because they are united to Jesus. This will be a major theme in the book of Colossians, our spiritual union with Jesus and what that has done for us. So we're saints not because of the good we've done, but because of the good that Jesus has done, and we are in him. We are united to Jesus. Okay? Of course, I think that brings an obligation for a certain standard of conduct. We should act and live out holy lives, but we are not holy because of the lives we live. We're holy because of the life that Christ has lived, and we are uni united with Christ. And so if you, by the way, you want to find something unique about Christianity, do, do all religions teach the same thing? Well, Buddhists will never talk about being in Buddha. 
Muslims will never talk about being in Allah. Mormons will never talk about being in Joseph, Joseph Smith or whatever. Christians will constantly talk about we are spiritually united with our God. We are indeed in him. And if we are united to Christ, as Paul was united to Christ, and the Colossians are united to Christ, will you notice that they are brothers. As Paul says there in verse 2, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ and Colossae. This is stunning, by the way, because the Colossians are Gentiles. Paul is a Jew. They are, uh, uh, there's an ancestral hatred between these two ethnicities. And now it is utterly destroyed. And he looks at them and he says, you're my brothers. How, how, can, how can that be? Well, the gospel destroys prejudices that once divided us whether it be race or whether it be class or, or whether it be political party or whatever it might be, the gospel comes and destroys those things and unites us despite them into a community, into a family. The church is a family. It is your family if you belong to Hamilton Baptist Church. This is a family gathering. And so what does that mean? It means we care for one another. It means we love one another. It means we support one another. It means we occasionally squabble with one another, right? And yet we are committed to one another. You know, so don't get up and run out. We stay with our family. And we work together as we are united in Christ. There was a family in Colossae. By God's grace, there's been a family uh, for 131 years in Hamilton. And indeed, once again, by God's grace, next year, about 11 months, there will be a new family constituted in a little town called Lovettsville, a new gospel community because of the gospel. They heard it. They believed it. Of course, that leads us secondly to the gospel's content. Notice what Paul says there in verse 5. By the way, I'm going to skip verses 3 and 4, come back to those next week, God willing. But verse 5, he says, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, the gospel. Gospel simply means, as you know, good news, good news. That's a very significant term. This is gospel, the core of Christianity, is the news of what God has done in Christ in order to restore us to him, in order to restore all of creation to him, in order to resume, return us and this world back to the kingdom of God. And so the core of our faith, you want to know again, what's different with our faith and other faiths? The core of our faith is news, to believe, not instruction to follow. Okay? All religions, all the world's religions come to us as good instruction, good advice. Right? This is what you need to do to return to God. Every single one. Here's the, here's the things to follow, here's the rules to keep, here's the rituals to perform. You be good, do this, and you'll find your way back to God. Every religion in this world comes and says, here is the instructions the good instructions to make your way back, except Christianity. Christianity does not come to us in the form of instruction, but comes to us in the form of news. I don't, I don't know which pastor uh, said it, but I learned long ago that religion treats everyone like a dog. Okay? And I mean that as a compliment. Okay? Right? Not a cat, a dog. Okay? Dogs are amazing animals. You, you take a dog, you drop a dog, 50 miles from home, there's stories of that, that dog making its way back home, right? Your dog goes over to your, your neighbor's yard, and you go to your dog, and you point to your house, and you say, go home, right? Most dogs will. Maybe not your dog, but most dogs will. Go home, right? You just point. Give them direction. 
offer a command, and the dog will make its way back to where it's supposed to be. That's what the world's religions do. Here's the command to get you home. Now you go home and tell you how. Christianity doesn't treat us like dogs. It doesn't treat us like lost dogs. It treats us like wayward sheep. Now, most of you never raised sheep. I, I used to have sheep. My sheep got out all the time. I, I once told my sheep, go home. <laughs> and it just looked at me and, right? Had no idea what I was talking about. You can't tell a sheep to go home. A sheep gets lost by going around the corner, has no idea how to get home. No way. How do you get a sheep home? You, uh, you throw it on your, your shoulders and you carry it home. Or in my case, you get in the back of your truck, okay? And you bring it home. The sheep does nothing to contribute to his restoration of being in the place in which it is supposed to be. And so does Christianity. Sheep, sheep contribute nothing to their salvation. The shepherd must do everything for them. Which is why God didn't send us a teacher. I mean, surely Christ is a teacher. He's not primarily a teacher. In fact, God tried this. He sent us teacher after teacher after teacher. They're called the prophets. And it worked. We just got more lost. We just got more rebellious. And so what did he need to send? Not a teacher, but a savior. You want to know what's unique about Christianity? It's the only religion that speaks of a savior who will do the work of salvation for us. One who will save us by his great work. I know of only one named Jesus. And so the gospel is the news of what Christ has done to save us. That is, he has come and lived a perfect life in our place and has died upon the cross for our sin, bearing our sin debt upon him, God punishing Jesus instead of us for our sin, and then three days later being raised from the dead. And now the good news is, this news is proclaimed, and what do you do with news? Well, you, you either believe it or you don't. And the Bible says it is by believing in that news that we are saved. That we become united to Christ. Not by our own works. Which is why Paul in verse 6 refers to this as an act of grace. Look what he says. Which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world. It, that's the gospel, is bearing fruit and growing. As it, the gospel, also does among you since the day you heard it, the gospel, and understood the grace of God in truth. So the gospel is all about grace. It's not something that we've done. We've earned just God being gracious to us. And notice that reference now a second time to truth in relationship to the gospel. In verse 5, you might have noted he called the gospel the word of truth. Now, I think this is also significant. And I know occasionally I spend time on this, but I'll just be a minute or two. That the gospel, Christianity, is about truth, not about helpfulness. And, and, and I say that because most, most uh, uh, in, our, in our day evaluate religion as to whether it is helpful, whether it helps you out. So if your religion helps you find a good parking place, right, well, that might be a good religion for you. If your religion helps, helps fix your marriage, that might be a good religion for you. If your religion caused you to do uh, self-denial, suffering, sacrifice, like planting a church in Lovettsville, well, you might want to find a different religion, the world would say. Why would anybody want to do that? In other words, so often what we do today is we pick, pick our religions like we pick our toothpaste. Well, this one whitens, I like that one. This one's cheap, I like that one. You know, I think I got a coupon for this one. I'll pick this one. Okay? And we evaluate it based upon our preferences and our needs. 
has nothing to do whether it's true or not, but is it helpful? Is it meet what, what, what I like? That's how people pick their faith. It was uh, in August, I was uh, listening to NPR as I occasionally do. I listened to a very interesting interview with an artist that I know nothing about other than her name, Evangeline Gentle. I don't recommend her, her music. I, I've never listened to a single song of hers. But there was a combination, conversation between Scott Simon, the interviewer, and uh, Evangeline Gentle about her queerness. And uh, Simon's asked her, uh, you've written about your queerness, that your queerness was something that made you feel, quote, inherently less gifted and valuable as an artist. Why did you feel that way? And she would go on, Evangeline Gentle would go on to talk about her religious upbringing, her Christian upbringing, which made her feel bad about herself. And then she said something that just stuck out to me. This is why I remember it. She said, quote, I quote her, the world is changing, religion is expanding to catch up with the times. You catch that? That is a very common view today. That religion needs to keep up with the times. Religion needs to stay current. In other words, religion is not a matter of truth, but it's a matter of cultural appropriateness. And so both these individuals just applauded this idea. Well, praise God that religion, I don't know if they're probably not praising God, pray, you know, celebrate that, that religion is actually changing. My question for you is then what do we do with truth? Why does Paul call it a word of truth? Not a word of, of cultural relevancy, not a word of helpfulness, not a word of inspiration, but a word of truth. And so I, I will say, as, as I trust you would say in your heart, we're going to, as a people of God, stand on God's truth, not our culture's standards. Amen? And so Paul, I think, exhorts us to that. This, of course, is the truth that leads to peace. I came across a story recently I found interesting. It was after the Civil War. A Union cavalry captain was riding up to D.C. when suddenly a soldier in tattered grays stumbled out of the woods. And he said to this uh, Union captain, can you help me? I'm starving to death. The captain said, why don't you just go down to Richmond and get what you need? He responded, three weeks ago I became so discouraged because of our losses that I deserted. And I've been hiding in the woods ever since. If I go back, I'll be shot. Haven't you heard the news? The captain asked. The war is over. Peace has been made two weeks ago. I think like that deserter, so many of God's image bearers are hiding in the woods, starving, cut off from the source of life, unaware that peace with God is actually offered to them through the work of Christ. I think the gospel is very similar to this Calvary captain who says there is peace, there is provision, there is all that you need found because the war has ended, because Christ has come. See, that truth changes everything if we believe it. And of course, people will only believe it if they hear it. Which leads us thirdly to the gospel messenger. These Colossians heard it from a man named Epaphras, as you note in verse 7. Just as you learn it from Epaphras, our fellow, our fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. I simply want to note here that they learned the gospel not from the mighty apostle Paul or any other mighty apostle. These apostles can't go everywhere. So to spread the kingdom of God, it's going to take a team. It's going to take a team effort. It's going to take all of us. And so here comes a very common man, a man we know almost nothing about. He's only mentioned to us in this book a few times and once in the book of Philemon. 
Nothing else is told to us about Epaphras other than he was faithful with the gospel and God used him to plant a church. It's just a reminder to us that we all have a role in the kingdom advance. We have a role here in Hamilton. Uh, Many of you, I pray, will have a role in the coming year in Lovettsville. To, to be a gospel messenger. And if we are a gospel messenger, by the way, just to be clear, that requires speaking. That requires talking about Jesus. There is a saying that seems to be uh, applauded within the church, share the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. You've heard that saying? I like how uh, someone uh, re- uh, came back. He said, yeah, we should feed the hungry at all times, and uh, if necessary, use food. Well, it's nonsense. You're going to feed the hungry, you have to use food. If you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to have to use words. I'm not saying that your life doesn't adorn the gospel, doesn't commend the gospel, doesn't compel people to the gospel. It does. It should. The Bible teaches that ought. But we're going to have to open our mouths and talk about Jesus. We're going to have to open our mouths and share. Even as as Cody helped us last week. The gospel, man... um, God, man, Christ, respond. If you want to learn how to share the gospel, I know any of your pastors would love to be able to spend 15 minutes with you. Very simple way to be able to articulate what we believe about the gospel. You could do it in a minute, 90 seconds, as to what you believe and how you can invite others to receive Christ. I will tell you, studies show again and again and again that people in the West, when they come to Christ, almost unanimously do so because they have first met another Christian whether it be at work or whether it be in the neighborhood. And they, yes, they've seen their different lives, but that person opens their mouths and shares their faith. And as we do, you'll see lastly, the gospel advances. The gospel advance. Note verse 6, once again. Which has come to you. Okay, that's the gospel. Notice the antecedent in verse 5. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's no fruitless tree. The gospel brings a harvest. The gospel transforms lives. Because of the gospel, we grow in peace and forgiveness and sacrifice and purity and love. It's certainly producing love in them, as you know, verse 8, uh, that Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Right? And so they're, they're um, loving people Um, who are different than them, which is contrary to our nature. We don't do that. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And they shared, he shared, Paphras shared this with Paul. Paul says, it's been made known to me how you love in the Spirit. I I mean, I think how great is it when a pastor's asked, tell me about your church, as certainly Paul did to Epaphras. And Epaphras says, well, when I I think about, you know, uh, Colossians Baptist Church, if you will, um, if I could put it that way, um, he says, well, I, I think about a community of people that love each other. And they do so because the Spirit indwells them. And certainly I, I, I would echo that about my own church that God has called me to pastor. I'm so thankful for Hamilton Baptist Church and the community that we have and the love that we share, the closeness that, that we feel to one another, that indeed uh, we love one another and do so in the Spirit and that we may we do so more and more. You see, the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives, but not just in their lives. You notice Paul says it's actually happening throughout the whole world. Just kind of stunning statement, isn't it? There, the gospel, indeed, in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. Paul looks around from his prison cell in Rome. And what does he see? Well, he sees in villages and towns and cities, like Colossae, 
the gospel growing, planting churches and changing lives across geographic and racial and class barriers, churches sprouting up everywhere. He could have looked in his day to Ethiopia in the south and found Christians there. He could look to Macedonia in the north and found Christians there. Syria in the east and Spain in the west. The gospel was going everywhere. In fact, one scholar has calculated by the end of the apostolic era, there were about a half a million Christians, which is utterly astonishing. It started in the year around 30 with 200. 60 years later, there's 500 thousand Christians. By the year 200 AD, the Christian problem was out of control. The church father Tertullian said, we are of but yesterday. We just started. And yet we already fill your cities, your islands, your camps, your palace, your senate. All that we have left to you are your temple buildings. We're everywhere. We just don't go to your temples. We don't want any part of those. And this is what's happening. And by the way, it's continuing throughout the world. The Joshua Project uh, calculates that there are somewhere around 17,000 different people groups in this world. 17,000 different kind of ethno, uh, uh, ethnicities of people speaking their own language, having their own culture. 10,000 of them have been reached with the gospel. It's stunning. It's astonishing. And most of those within the last 200 years. And yet, of course, that remains 7,000 people groups left to be impacted by the gospel. People like the Bedini Kurds in northern Iraq or the Yazidis who are also living there. Of course, we have friends there right now, don't we? Living amongst them, hoping to bring the gospel to them, to plant a church in Kurdistan. We have friends in, in South Dakota seeking to bring the gospel to the Lakota Indians. We have friends in Papua New Guinea seeking to bring the gospel uh, to the Lucy people. We have friends in Guatemala and Ghana seeking to spread the gospel in their communities. And of course, we, 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 we're here in Hamilton and in Lovettsville. And we hope to be able to spread the gospel, that it might continue to advance just as Paul preached and Epaphras believed and then Epaphras preached and then the Colossians believed. And, and now, 2,000 years later, I have the great honor to preach and my, my hope and prayers that you believe. And in just less than a year, Cody Snyder will preach up in Lovettsville and that many will come and believe there as the gospel continues to abound. Of course, our prayer is that many from Hamilton Baptist Church will go with Cody and start this new church in September of next year. Maybe go with them permanently. Maybe some of you would pray about going. I'm going to go for a year and two, a year or two, and, and just uh, be on mission. And then I could come back to Hamilton. Maybe the idea of leaving Hamilton is too, too hard of a barrier for you to get on there. You might be able to go for just a, a period of time and start a church there, just like happened 131 years ago. We wouldn't be here if not on April 7th in 1889, about a dozen or so Christians living in this area started. There's a little church called Hamilton Baptist Church. And here we are. By the way, that was nothing new. They were just walking a path that Epaphras walked long ago, a path that Cody will walk next year with many of you, I trust. In fact, you notice how Epaphras is referred to there in verse 7? I love how Paul says it. He is a fellow servant. A fellow servant. You see that footnote by the word servant? When you drop down, you'll see I might say a bond servant. What is a slave? A slave. I, I, I wonder why the English translators never translate the word. It's the Greek word doulos. I, don't, I wonder why they never translate it slave. It might be because of our history and 
Slavery back then was far different than slavery in, in our history. And so they always translate it servant. Of course, a servant and a slave are similar, aren't they? But there is a significant difference, isn't, isn't there? A servant's hired, of course, and a slave is owned. Of course, this is how the Bible describes us as Christians, slaves, slaves to God. After all, Paul will write elsewhere, you've been bought with a price. You've been purchased. That's the language of slavery. Christ has purchased you, and therefore you are what? You're a doulos. You're a slave. It's interesting, if you study the book of Leviticus, as we did a number of years ago, you'll find out there are two kinds of slaves. In, in ancient Israel, at least, there are temporary slaves, people who have gotten into debt, would have to sell themselves into slavery, but would be released from slavery once their debt is paid off or the seventh year comes around. Every seven years, all slaves are released. And yet, there was a second class of slaves. If you were a slave and you found your master so endearing, according to the book of Leviticus, you, you could commit yourself to your master for the rest of your life and say, I want to serve you no matter what. I'm yours forever. I am in your service till I die. Well, that's the heart of a Christian, isn't it? I'm, I'm willingly and permanently binding myself to, in service of the Lord. I'm a slave of God. I'll do what you say. I'll go where you send. I'm at your disposal. It reminds me of a of a man that I read about long ago, a man who lived long ago, his name was Sanctus. And Sanctus was arrested in the Roman Empire under the reign of Marcus Aurelius for the crime of being a Christian. And they interrogated a Sanctus, attempting to get him to denounce his faith. And yet every, every uh, question they asked him, he would respond with the same answer. Sanctus would respond, I am a Christian. They would ask him his name. He would say, I am a Christian. They'd ask him the city from which he is from. He would say, I am a Christian. They asked him if he was bond or free. He would say, I am a Christian. As they continued to interrogate him, to try to get him to recant, they realized he wouldn't, so they sentenced him to execution. His execution was rather spectacular in their minds, I trust. In the center of an amphitheater, he was chained to a burning hot chair as wild animals were set upon him, all the while his torturers whispered in his ear for him to recant, for him to denounce his faith and receive a quick and speedy execution rather than the torture that he was experiencing. And yet all those men would hear as he spent his final minutes on this earth, over and over again, Sanctus declared, I am a Christian. For him... His entire identity, his name, his citizenship, his status was bound up in Jesus. I wonder about you. Where's your identity? To whom are you united? Who's your master? My hope and prayer is that our master is not a political party. It's not our desire for wealth or security or ease. Our master is Christ. And because of that, because of Christ being our master, we, he guides us in how we spend our time and our resources, and yes, even our life. He guides us in how we serve our church and what church we serve. And, and I, my, I pray that, that if we have that attitude, I'm Christ, I belong to him, he has bought me, I'll do whatever he wants and I'll go wherever he sends. 
I'm confident that within a year, by God's grace, we will be able to speak of the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, in Lovettsville. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the gospel and the work that it has done in our life. We're thankful for your grace to us that we have found through it. A grace that is secured to, uh, to us through Jesus. And Father, we pray that because we have received this gospel, that we would be faithful stewards of it. That indeed, as, as your doulos, as your slave, that Father, we would want to follow you wherever you send and do whatever you command. Maybe that's just an act of obedience that we're failing to do, Father. Will you please guide us in that? Will you help us to repent? My brothers and sisters, even as you burden them right now with some area in their life, will you not help them to even confess in their own hearts this very moment, God, I, I belong to you. And I'm going to do what you've asked. Father, may that be our heart's attitude because of what we have received in Christ. Father, may we cherish this gospel. May we faithfully steward it as you guide and lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.